Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Garki, and today I have with me Dr. Kavita Panod. She is the Honorary Creative Writing Fellow and Early Career Fellow at the University of Leicester. She's the editor of Anthology to Asian, Not, to Asian, Not Asian Enough. Um, she is the author of the book, Book of Birmingham, and the co-editor of the first Bear Lit Anthology. We also are privileged to have Jeremy Tiang. Uh, he's an, there's a novelist, uh, playwright, and literary translator. He has translated over 20 books from across the Chinese-speaking world. Uh, their first novel, State of Emergency, won the Singapore Literature Prize in 2018. Um, both of them joined me today to talk about their uh, co-edited anthology, Violent Phenomena, 21 Essays on Translation. Hello, Kavita and Jeremy. How are you today? Great, thank you. Thanks for inviting us. Yes, thanks for having us, Gaki. As always, I'd like to start with the genesis of this book. How did this book come to be? What were some initial ideas? Yes, so Kavita, I've got a really vivid sense memory of us standing on the steps of Roti King in London after we just had a delicious Malaysian meal. And we've been talking for some time about decolonizing translation and literature and the work you'd been doing with Literature Must Fall. But I think it was on those steps that we made a commitment to work together on this and This was pre-pandemic, so my memory is somewhat hazy. But we'd been talking for a while, and Deborah Smith from Tilted Axes had raised the issue of bringing together some of the conversations that have been happening around these subjects. And we had both been making our individual efforts, um, and I had been thinking about how my own translation practice um, pushes against my colonial, uh, post-colonial, I guess, upbringing, because I grew up in Singapore, and what I wanted translation to do, and what I wanted the translation space to be. Um, And so this anthology 
feels like it came out of work we'd already been, already been doing and conversations that had already been happening. I think uh, in addition to that, uh, how we actually met is also another context for the anthology coming up. So I had already been working on and thinking about uh, critical perspectives on on how we read and how we write for some time through this anthology I edited to Asian or Asian Enough and some of my academic work but I was new to translation um, I'd also been thinking about it as a as a fiction writer through my writing as well but I came to translation not too long ago and I started a mentorship to translate the short stories of Anjali Gajal from Hindi, Hindi into English. And as part of that, I worked with Jeremy. So uh, we were having many conversations that were questioning lots of the assumptions around translation, questions such as, do we translate all the words, what we don't translate, um, and more crucially, who are we translating for? So... Um, it was it was really wonderful to work with Jeremy and to to ask these more political questions as we were working through the translated stories. So that was also a, a relationship that had started in that in that relationship, um, uh, and we continued to to think about that in, in thinking about this anthology. I also would say that. Another context for the anthology coming about is the wider conversation around diversity and people being more interested in translation and thinking about the importance of translated literature in order to have more diverse literature, but being critical about that approach, which continues to often centre whiteness or centre this idea of acquisition or curiosity um, access to to the world um, that that there were also more nuanced conversations happening including online uh, including social media in terms of questioning uh, who who the translator often is and how we translate and who we translate for, what are the books that are translated. So it's not a simple uh, thing to, to simply, you know, have more translated literature. And we really wanted to have a space where we brought a lot of these conversations, debates together uh, in, in something like this anthology. Yeah. Uh, if you allow me to ask this uh, little personal question, uh, your Google search bio doesn't always show um, the link that you may have because, Kavita, you have written um, about and worked in also in the subcontinent and in the UK. And, Jeremy, you have um, dealt with a wide variety of Chinese language texts coming from China and Southeast Asia. Uh, where did you meet each other? I mean, I should say that the translation community is not that large, and I feel like we would have met each other eventually. Um, but we were brought together by the mentorship that Kavita mentioned, which was um, organized by the National Center for Writing um, and actually sponsored by Tilted Axes, who published Violent Phenomena. Um, 
So Deborah Smith had wanted to underwrite a mentorship that was not unlike most of the centre's mentorships focused on a particular language or a particular country, but it was a mentorship specifically for a translator of colour, or as they say in the UK, I don't know if they still say this, but a -A BAME translator. Um, And that was part of a greater shift that's been happening in, I would say, in the last 10 years, or it's picked up steam in the last 10 years, where translation is not seen as a neutral act, but the identity of the translator, the heritage, the background, what they bring to the translation is seen as a salient fact in how translation is carried out and broadening access to who gets to translate, who's able to be a translator was a crucial step in this. So this mentorship, which brought us together, I think was always going to involve asking these questions about how are we translating, who gets to translate, who are we translating for, and how does that change the way we carry out our translation practice? So yeah, it, it felt from the beginning that we were colleagues and not you know having a mentor-mentee relationship. And we've kept in touch and kept these conversations going long past the formal end of the program. I'll just add, no, BAME is not cool anymore. <laughs> um, I think it was it was seen as an externally kind of imposed label, often for funding kind of, you know, applications. And people kind of said it sounded a bit like blame. Um, I think people, even though there are problems with this kind of uh, uh people of colour or writers of colour or translators of colour, there are problems with that, but it still feels like something that um, has come out of a political context instead of being purely a kind of administrative and externally imposed label. Um, When I looked at the cover and the index of the book, I thought it was like the commonly found academic collection of essays. And very quickly, when I opened the book, I realized that I was absolutely wrong in making that assumption. Could you tell a little um, to our listeners how this book was developed? Was there a call for papers? Was there a conference? Uh, did you contact the people you know uh, you knew in the industry? Or... And what were the these conversations like? Did you have some guidelines for the authors? Uh, so I could answer that. It definitely was not an academic book in its um, in how we imagined it and and how we put it together. So there was no conference, um, and it, 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 there was never any intention of it being purely for an academic. Uh, audience or for university context. It was very much about bringing together conversations which are happening both inside and outside academia, but actually I often find having myself one foot in academia and one foot out, I feel that the conversations happening outside of those spaces are are kind of moving far more quickly and they far more they draw on our lived life and our experiences and on you know, activist political uh, understandings. And I think we really wanted to locate the book in that kind of context in which academia is used wherever it's useful, but it's it's not purely academic. Um, so the process of putting the book together was to have a call out. So we wanted to, to 
reach out to as many people as possible. And um, we had quite a lot of submissions for abstracts. Uh, I don't know if we use the word abstract, but it was a kind of just a summary of, of the essay that people would write. And then we longlisted and shortlisted through lots of conversations between Jeremy and I, and the publisher gave us a lot of space. So we, 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 we pretty much directed that process. And we then approached the writers whose abstracts we really liked and worked with them over quite a long period to to write drafts and to redraft. And there was a, a process of both kind of personal, more personal support um, and editing and feedback um, through that process. And, and we also wanted to fill in some gaps that we felt were there in the book. So we did also both reach out in some cases to people we knew or knew of, but also we did a lot of research and we really dug around to kind of, you know, find other voices that for, for what we saw as uh, aspects of translation that were not being explored. Um, I don't know if Jeremy wants to say more about that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was trying to push past our existing circles and to go beyond what we already knew. Like, I think we had a good sense of what conversations were happening, but at the same time, we were only aware of the conversations that we were aware of. And we knew that that couldn't be the entirety of it, that probably there were spaces we didn't have access to, there were probably whole other platforms and discussions that we weren't privy to. So we wanted to try to find a way to reach beyond um, the limits of our knowledge. So we spread the call as wide as we could. We were writing to, you know, literary associations in, in countries you'd never been to, saying, please share this with your members, just in the hopes of getting the word out um, to circles that we weren't a part of and, and pulling in voices from up beyond that. Because I think it would have been a shame if the anthology had just reinforced what we were already thinking or just tapped people we already knew of. And I think we did succeed in going beyond our immediate circles and bringing voices into conversation that perhaps otherwise would never have met. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think the book does sit at the intersection of academia and practice. Because um, I, I kind of had the opposite journey to Kavita, I guess, um, in that I've always been a practitioner. I've always written and translated and I work in theatre. Um, and for a while, I was sceptical of theory. You know, I saw theory as an analytical tool, um, something that was useful for academics to think about literature and translation, but not necessarily of use to practitioners. But the longer I started thinking about how and why I was doing what I was doing, the more I realized I needed an intellectual framework to structure and support it. And that probably people had already had the thoughts I'd been having in a more sophisticated way. And maybe I should not try to reinvent the wheel, but rather see what conversations were already happening. Um, and I've been trying in my personal practice to integrate theory into what I do. And I think the book does a similar thing of trying to use the rigor and the structure of theory um, 
as a container for practice, but not to overwhelm it and not to subsume it, but just to provide um, scaffolding where it is useful. Um, I think to to add to that, I think part of the problem becomes the the separation, and and I feel I wonder if part of it is professionalism, or um, is there something else where we have these separate categories of a writer, or a translator, or an academic, or um, an activist, and and actually we should be able to draw on all of these aspects but not necessarily have this distinction so definitely for writers and for translators to to think about the the theoretical frameworks and and to think more critically about what they do how they do it why they do it is really important and i'd agree with jeremy that the academic context is is helpful and useful insofar as it helps you, but it shouldn't become fetishized or it shouldn't become a pure abstraction, but something that, you know, as much as it can help us, uh, whether it's in terms of what you agree with or what you disagree with. So, uh, you know, something to kind of, um, that's something that helps you to articulate your own thinking and approach. Um, There may be also um, something to say about your choice of publisher. I know you have touched upon this, but I have looked at the catalog uh, for this year for Tilted Actors Press, and they have uh, translations from various Asian languages, and your book, which is not a translation, but a collection of essays, was um, uh, was was this uh, something that you chose to go with the publisher, or as you said, they were always involved in it. Is that something that you thought over, the choice of publisher? Or was it always very evident for you? I mean, it, it, because you, we can't really extricate the book, the project from the publisher, partly because of that mentorship, uh, but also the fact that Deborah Smith, who founded Tilted Axis, actually was somebody who... Um, I think came up with the idea or really wanted to do this and was very passionate about it. So um, it was something that we, in a way that we worked with the publisher, it wasn't something that we came up with in in isolation and then approached the publisher. Um, At the same time, it seems like the perfect home for the the book, the project as well, because um, it's, accessible um it's something both in terms of the price and the presentation it's not facing an academic audience which is definitely not was never our intention uh it's a bonus if the book is read and shared and taught in universities and we're really pleased that that is the that is how it what is happening but we really wanted this book to be um available and accessible for anybody who's interested in translation, in literature, in um, thinking thinking more critically about translation. Um, so I don't know if Jeremy wants to add to that. Yeah, I, I think what we wanted was a, a book that um, could, could exist in an academic space, but also wasn't exclusively situated there. And as, as Kavita said, we would never have brought this anywhere else because it didn't originate with us. It originated with Deborah Smith and Tilted Axis. 
But also Tilted Axe is, is, I think, the perfect home for this because it already has an existing readership of people who love translation, who love the sorts of voices that Tilted Axis gives a platform to, voices that otherwise might not be heard. And I think you you go where the readers are and you expand beyond that. Because the exact same book, if we'd done it with an academic press, would have been received differently and because of that reception would have become a different book. So I think it is a book that can be and has been set on university courses, but it is hopefully inviting. Um, Many of the essays are very much not academic, but rather personal, based on practice, accessible to the general reader. Well, I hope all the essays are accessible to the general reader. But we met all our contributors where they were at, and we didn't want to impose a framework. Everyone was free to write um, what they wanted to write, how they wanted to write it. Some of the essays, you have to turn the book on their side to read. And we were fine with that, as long as typographically it could happen. One of the contributors asked to include a picture of her cat, and we said, yes, yes, please do that. Um, So I think we were aiming for a space of openness and to not approach this with a prescriptive idea of what this anthology would be, but to choose the voices that we wanted to include and then throw the doors open to them and say, surprise us. Uh, Most people who have tried anything at translation realize that translation is messy, it's tangled, and even in your own head, there are more contestations than there are agreements about any word that is supposed to be translated. However, the title of your book is A Violent phenomenon. Is translation violent? And I want to know if you have used this word for emphasis or you want the readers to take this very literally. Well, the title actually is a quote from Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth in Constant Farrington's translation. Um, Fanon asserts that decolonization is always a violent phenomenon. And we wanted to echo that because if colonialism is a violent process, then how could you decolonize by any means other than violent ones? And decolonization is disruptive. Decolonization is a break with the existing order. Um, So that is violent. And I think we wanted to acknowledge that to remind ourselves that it's not going to be a smooth or easy process. um, And there is going to be conflict The title is also um, a bit of a provocation. Um, I think it should jolt the reader. It should catch attention because we want this book to not just slip seamlessly into the existing discourse, but to provide a break and to say, hey, the way things are right now, the way publishing, academia, translation currently exist are dysfunctional in many ways and we would like a rupture and here are some voices articulating their vision of what that might look like. So yeah, it, it was for a while our working title was Decolonizing Translation and we just went, no, that is A, too bland and B, I think we're both a bit sceptical about the word decolonizing and feel that 
as with the word diversify before that, it might become watered down through overuse and eventually no longer relevant. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say that it probably already has become um, watered down and, and appropriated. And there, there was a shared sense that we had that it's so easy to, for words to, to lose their meaning and to be appropriated. Um, and decolonizers being used now in the same way as diversity, which does end up being a form of inclusion and not a deeper change and a, a deeper questioning of the power structures um, that that shape um, the, the kind of mainstream context. So uh, I would agree with Jeremy that it was important to have a title that signifies uh, a, a deeper disruption than simply a kind of inclusion um, that, that maintains the status quo. Also, uh, another once we started thinking about violence, we also started to to get a sense that this is a word that comes up in a lot of the essays. So many of the contributors mention the violence of of being translated. So there's often a refusal to translate and, and uh, uh, arguments about not translating. Um, and also the actual process of working in the, the world of translation in the mainstream is experienced as a form of violence. Uh, and the, the essay that we we put as the, the first essay by Gitanjali Patel and Nariman Yusuf is actually called All the Violence It May Carry on Its Back, which tied quite well with our with our title for the anthology. Um, and, and their title is actually t- a line taken from Madhukaza's compilation anthology called Kitchen Table Translation, which was published in the States. And I think our... our common feeling is that it has a similar intention and in some ways we're building on that work that Madhu did in putting that anthology together um, and so it's it's good to also acknowledge that through this title um, of both the book and the first essay. Yeah, uh, I loved um, the introduction of this book where you're talking about decolonizing translation. And I know you have mentioned um, how this word has lost its meaning. But if you could tell the readers about what you wanted it to mean, because the definition I and a lot of the audience that would be listening to this would have a very academic uh, definition to uh, decolonization, where, for example, the difference between post-colonization and decolonization um, and debates like that. What, How would you like to define this word? Uh, so I wrote this essay, Decolonize, Not Diversify, in 2015, and it felt like, if I look back now, I feel like the word, there wasn't perhaps a lot of thought given into that word, but it became a signifier and quite a powerful signifier 
to highlight a certain politics and some of the context in which that that phrase was being used was campaigns in universities such as roads must fall and why is my curriculum white and and really questioning again how superficial and surface diversity is and the impatience and we really talk about that in the introduction a kind of collective impatience but it really felt like there were struggles that were happening at the margins and and to some extent they were probably uh ignored um but there but there were these pushbacks push uh, pushing from the margins um but what has happened since then is that decolonize has been taken up as a word um and it's used so much in by universities and by the media and by publishing companies that it it I, I personally feel that it either means the same thing as diversity, but also often means the same thing as post-colonialism. And and one of the aspects of that is also the binary that that ends up assuming, because at the heart of it, what we're really interested in is power. And it must be power in all kinds of ways, including the layers amongst people of colour or our countries of origin. Um, and something like the way in which decolonize is used often is about having a binary of, for example, the colonized and the colonizer or um, whiteness versus people of color. Um, so it, it doesn't feel very satisfactory uh, as, a, as a framework. And I think that's something that in this anthology we really gave a lot of thought to as well. How do we acknowledge these layers and not work in these binaries? So, for example, in terms of thinking about um, essays from India, um, from the Indian context, it was it was really important to to think about the layers within. India. For example, there's an essay by Oneza Drabu on Kashmir and Kashmiri and, and the ways in which the language is being erased and the resistance to that. Or Yogesh Metreya, who writes about caste and he writes about the dominance of the upper caste perspective in the literature that's translated and that tends to be to be read um, internationally. So the project is is about engaging with those layers and, and thinking about power as something ongoing. Yeah, I think as Kavita says, there isn't a simple answer to this question. And if there was, we wouldn't need the book. It's an ongoing conversation. It means different things to different people. And it's more about bringing these individual approaches so we can learn from and explore each other's visions, come together, have deeper conversations, go further than we could on our own. Like, you know, in my own life, I I think I came to decolonizing initially from a very naive perspective because I went through the journey that is so common, that is a cliche at this point. Why did I grow up in Asia reading Enid Blyton? Why did I think about winter, even though I grew up on a tropical island? And why was the UK and the West at the centre of my world. Why am I speaking English? And bringing that into my own writing and then my translation work has been initially a question of decolonizing my own mind, literally decolonizing, removing the patterns of thought established by colonialism, even though I was born in a time after colonialism, and thinking about how my translation work 
might push against these structures rather than replicating them? Like, how do you translate into English an imperial language in such a way that you're actually destabilizing established hierarchies rather than merely presenting the marginalized in a ready-to-consume form, thus reinforcing existing power structures? And the more I think about this, the more I want to talk about it with other people, the more I want to have these conversations make a material change in the literary ecosystem we work within. So all of that, I think, is much bigger than any one label. And I'm now much more interested in talking about the structures and doing rather than necessarily finding a word that can encompass it. Um, if you allow me, uh, I'd like to read a sentence from this book, and um, this is in quotes. Above all, this book is a challenge to inherited assumptions about translators and translations being neutral, making the case that every aspect of translation is political, unquote. What do you um, understand by translators or translations as being neutral, what is this neutrality that um, the so-called neutrality that you're pointing out? There's a. Do you want to start, Jeremy? Um, so the part of that neutrality is the neutrality, assumed neutrality of literature, um, and this is Jeremy had mentioned this project of literature must fall that I've been. Um, involved in and working on, but it's also it's about questioning the ways in which we think literature is somehow elevated or above or separate from society and something that we learn from. So, all literature is located in the world and its structures. Um, and as I was saying earlier, that when we're thinking about the kind of diversity framework, it's just, it's still centering, for example, this neutral, normative, white perspective from which we access, you know, through curiosity or through, you know, desire to, to you know, enjoy, you know, uh, literature that's different, but that norm remains as a kind of location of power. Um, and so we then translated literature becomes a way of, you know, seeking even further afield to get that, you know, otherness and to um, uh, have it made palatable to you. Um, so often that's not really questioned and, and, and we're really questioning the fact that it's uh, an assumption for across the field, whether it's the the media or it's publishing companies or it's readers or often writers and translators themselves. So, for example, many of the campaigns also to to on the behalf of translators, there's a sense that translators are on the margins of the in the field of literature and so there's campaigns to have more visibility which is which is important of course um, and it's especially important for translators who are themselves from marginalized backgrounds um, and it's important for other reasons like for example the positionality of the translator becomes more visible the fact that so many translators tend to be white for example um, or 
uh, the perspective that the translators are coming from. Um, so sometimes these campaigns to to put the name on on you know the translator on the book um, can often. Um, uh, reinforce the kind of sense of power of translators being powerless, but there's also a power that translators have in not being named because then there's an implicit kind of uh, notion of the translation being objective and the translation being neutral by not naming the translator. So we read the book almost as if, you know, this is how it is. We have to take for granted these words um, and, and this this version in terms of how it's been translated. So I don't know if that answers your question, but, but yeah. Yes, I think as Kavita says, the idea of the translator being neutral is linked to the idea of the translator being invisible. Um, and this idea in the popular imagination that translation is an act that doesn't have any level of interpretation. You just move words from one language to another without any kind of filter. But as we know, that's not impossible. And rather than pretend that that's the situation, I think it's healthier to foreground the translator as a creative artist. And by being aware of the translator, you are aware of the judgments and shifts and perspective that the translator brings to their work. So making the translator visible not only is, I think, um, a rightful acknowledgement of the labour of translation and the creativity and artistry behind it, but also um, makes clear what the landscape is. The growing visibility of the translator, I think, actually made it really glaringly obvious how white the Anglophone translation world is in the West. And so that has led to, I think, a lot of shifts in the landscape. Yeah. And and the opposite of neutral in this code is political. And... Um, in my interpretation, you, what you mean by political is the visibility of the translator. Have I understood this correctly? I mean, I would say that everything is political. If, if you people who claim to be not political are implicitly upholding the status quo, which is a political act. Um, so I, I think everything is political in that everyone has a framework that they operate within. Everyone has a way of seeing the world and that is going to seep into the way they write and the way they translate. And so interrogating these perspectives and making sure that we have thought them through and can justify them rather than they're just what we've inherited, they're just what the ways our minds have been shaped by our upbringings and by our surroundings. Um, is a way of making visible what is there anyway and really thinking it through rather than just accepting it as is. Um, we're at almost at the end of this podcast. Um, what do you hope the readers take from this book? What do you hope changes in the translation industry or the translation field after this book has been read by many different people? Or do you not have any hopes? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we we hope that it's about opening up 
what translation is as well as who translates. Um, speaking for myself, part of that is also really questioning the idea of the professional translator as well, um, of translation as um, something that you learn or you have to go through some kind of formal training. Um, it's it, it's hopefully um, uh, it will contribute towards interrogation of those who do already translate of, of many of their assumptions, um, but also amongst the, the industry, whether it's publishers or um, universities. I don't know if Jeremy wants to add to that. Yeah, I, I think what we hope for is that people will think about why things are the way they are. For translators, how we translate, how translation is seen, how translation is valued. And for everyone else, how we read translations, how we publish translations, what gets translated, who gets to translate. All of these things are often presented as, well, that's just how it works. And I think what the book seeks to do is prod at these assumptions and go, well, why is it this way? Could it be different? What might that look like? Um, So to question the world as it is, and to imagine the world as it could be. That's an impactful ending for the podcast. But before you go, uh, I'd like to talk a little about your future projects. I'm not sure uh, if you're ready to talk about them right now. What are you working on right now, which we hope uh, to read from you? Um, so I can share. There's a, a few different things that I'm working on. One of them is I'm actually um, at the stage of editing the collection of stories that I've translated by Anjali Gajal, which I mentioned earlier, which Jeremy uh, mentored me with in, earlier on in the project. So I'm really excited about that. I'm also working on a book which develops the ideas around literature must fall. So it's an in-depth kind of uh, analysis of how literature is seen, how writers are seen in in our society and including in popular culture and in other books as something sacred or mystified or superior. And then I'm looking closely at at, at many books to, to unpack the kind of ideologies and how literature can often actually uphold dominant ideologies or the structures um, so it contradicts what we think literature does and what it is um, so I'm excited about that but there's lots of other things I'm organizing a Punjabi literature festival here in Birmingham for next year and I've got novels which I need to return to so I need to return to my own fiction writing as well so yeah lots going on <laughs> Yes, like like Kavita, I'm probably doing slightly too much, but there's so much out there and so many directions to to um, explore. Um, I've got a number of translation projects coming up, um, including one with Tilted Axes, which probably I shouldn't talk about because it hasn't. We actually haven't signed the contracts yet, but I think it is going ahead. It's a book from Singapore. Um, I think all I should say at this stage is that it's extremely communist. Um, I'm also um, Continuing in my theatre work, I'm writing a play that's half in Chinese and half in English, which I'm really excited about. And I'm translating a Taiwanese play that's set in a zoo and questions the roles that we ascribe to each other in society and also whether animals are in fact 
different to humans. Um, and I have been teaching. Um, I, I set violent phenomena as a text for my students at Columbia, and it sparked some really interesting conversations. So I suppose we didn't really talk about this, but um, one other hope I have for this book that it is that it is going to say things that I wish I had heard when I was much younger, and maybe people who are coming into the field of translation and literature and publishing now will be able to come across these voices and have their worlds expanded that much sooner. And that's how the landscape will change. They all sound like fascinating projects. I wish you the best. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Gaki. This is great.